Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network as we jump feet first into an episode we are calling COVID Goes to College. <laughs> Returning to the Dr. Doctor microphone will be our friend, Dr. Paul Cieslak, infectious disease and public health specialist from Portland, Oregon. And visiting Dr. Doctor for the first time will be Steve Minnis, president of Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Since mid-August, we've heard news about the various ways colleges and universities are dealing with the pandemic. Yes, some are completely virtual with students at home like Michigan State University after a huge surge in cases shortly after students arrived on campus. And some have all virtual classes, but the students get to stay on campus like at Harvard. Yeah, and other campuses started the year with in-person classes and paused for a couple of weeks after the cases jumped. I'm thinking of places like Notre Dame that opened back up on September 2nd and the University of Virginia, which was planning to shift back to in-person classes after September 8th. And other colleges have met in-person from the beginning and are still predominantly meeting in-person with some online classes like Hillsdale College, Franciscan University, and Benedictine College. We have so much to cover today with our esteemed guests, so we'll move right on to the medical trivia question today to leave more room for the interview. Yeah, and in fact, our category, not surprisingly, is university life during a plague. Tom comes up with a lot of these plague questions. I don't know what, what book you've got, Tom, but you've, you've got all the plague questions. Well, I, actually, uh, when I worked in um, infectious disease research uh, back in the previous millennium, uh, one of the diseases that was my expertise was the plague. And I actually <laughs> uh, still, I'm the second author in the textbook of military medicine in the biologic warfare defense uh, book chapter on plague. So hey, it's there a, you go. There's a lot of interesting history around it. So anyway, Britain's last major outbreak of the plague came in 1665 and 1666. And across the country at that time, universities were closed and they didn't even have the option of virtual classes. So at Cambridge University, a young student left college behind to wait out the plague in the countryside where, because he didn't want to get bored, he investigated optics using a glass prism he'd picked up at Cambridge before fleeing. Uh, and then on another day or weekend, he invented calculus, and he also ended up describing gravity and the laws of motion, all in his year off from Cambridge. So who was this genius who made the most of his year in quarantine away from Cambridge University? You're going to have to hang on to find out the answer at the end of the interview, but we'll be back soon here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back today on Dr. Doctor with two esteemed guests. Returning to Dr. Doctor, we have Dr. Paul Cieslak, infectious disease doctor, who is not only the medical director for the Oregon Public Health Division's communicable disease and immunization programs, but still sees ID patients in the clinic once a month. In 1988, Dr. Cieslak married a gal from Enterprise, Oregon, and fast forward 32 years, and they have six children, half of which I think are in college at this time. So, Paul, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. And to help tell an interesting story about what's going on with college and COVID, we have President Steve Minnis of Benedictine University, where he got his bachelor's degree. He then got an MBA at Baker University, and he got a doctorate, a Juris Doctorate in Law at Washburn University. So he worked in the county prosecutor's office and then 14 years for Sprint Corporation, but in 20, 2004, he became president of Benedictine College, which is recommended in the Cardinal Newman Society Guide of Recommended Catholic Colleges. He and his wife, Amy, also a Benedictine graduate, live in Atchison, Kansas, and have three grown children. And I might note on a personal item, I have a daughter at Benedictine College, and I'm proud to do so. Steve, welcome to your first time on Dr. Doctor. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate you being here. I'm, I was really excited about having your daughter Benedictine, but I'm very <laughs> disappointed that neither of Paul's, none of Paul's kids have gone there yet. But we're we've still got a couple to go, don't we, Paul? Uh, yes, we do. Mayor Colfa, okay. Mayor Colfa. We'll, we'll work on it. So, Paul, if you'd be so good, you know, let's go back. The last time there was a, a major pandemic in the United States, 100 years ago with the flu. What did colleges do with their classes at that time? 
Well, they did a variety of things, and uh, most of them would seem familiar to you. Uh, some of them closed classes entirely. Uh, many of them continued to hold class, but uh, some of them required masking. For example, uh, Stanford required masking um, <clears throat> at Indiana University. 30 out of the 40 Greek houses had to be placed under quarantine. Um, <laughs> so they, they, they took a lot of the steps that uh, we're hearing about right now and, uh, and you know, with, with varying success. But remember, there's a big difference between the 1918 pandemic and this one, because uh, back then, the big mortality was among the young adult groups, kind of the yes. college-age kids. And uh, this one, we're, we're seeing a different mortality pattern. So, so based on that, Paul, what principles should colleges follow now, particularly different from the ones they might have used with the flu back then, which was hitting the young adults? Right. I think um, that that we need to we need to take seriously the uh, the social distancing measures uh, and the masking because we, we know how the virus is transmitted. It's actually transmitted uh, very similarly to the to the way influenza is transmitted, which is by uh, respiratory droplets and and possibly by uh, small particle aerosols. So uh, we we need to maintain the distance and we need to. Uh, use masking and we need good hand hygiene. Uh, we need to avoid uh, clustering indoors with uh, large numbers of people, you know, outside of our household. So, uh, you know, limit the number of different people you have contact with. But I think because the, the uh, infection is less severe in that young adult population, that it's going to be more possible to hold classes uh, than and, and less necessary to close the college entirely than it was back in uh, 1918. And Steve, I'd like to get your take on this because you've got real world experience at Benedictine College. And in the fall semester, what, what kind of plans did you have in place before you started to protect the flock at, at school there? And sure, the flock of raven, ravens, that is. I love it's, that. Protect it's the, the Benedictine raven. Right? The flock, right. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Interestingly enough, I was going to uh, follow up on Paul. I, read, I went to, back to our history of the college. We were founded in 1858. There's like nary a word on the, on the Spanish flu uh, during that time. They, they did not mention it at all in, our, in the history. So it was really kind of interesting. So I don't know what they did here at Benedictine College during the, the, during the Spanish influenza, actually. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But, you know, like every college, I was going to give you a little history. Almost like every college in America, we shut down in March, right? Sent everybody home and went completely online uh, for the rest of that semester. So when the summer came about, actually, we, you know, sat down, we thought about it and, and thought about the impact on our young people. And so we came up with several commitments that we wanted to commit to. We wanted to commit to be open in a safe and healthy environment with a dynamic campus life, including athletics, with available faith programs, uh, including the sacraments, uh, with students in the classroom, and we wanted to do all that so we could remain open and true to our mission. So that was kind of our commitment. We gave that to our students, we gave that to our community, and everything from that moment on geared ourselves to those commitments uh, to have, you know, basically to be open with face-to-face uh, -face education and to stay open. So we, uh, we spent a lot of time in the summer uh, doing things that we had never done before. We had to create a whole mitigation plan at the college in order to keep our kids safe and our whole community safe. So we created a, what we call Raven Safety. And this is a 50 page mitigation plan that we put in place that went all the way from student life to athletics, what we were, what we were gonna do to keep our community safe and healthy and be able to, to have, have class, uh, have school in session. Um, probably the, the keys were very similar to what uh, uh, Dr. Paul just talked about, which was uh, we required masking, distancing, so we had to spread out our classrooms so we would have appropriate distance in our classrooms. Um, uh, we moved school up one week because we wanted to end before flu season and what was at the time thought to be a second wave in November. And so we moved everything up a week. We canceled fall break. And then we uh, all our classes will be done by Thanksgiving. And our finals will be given at home 
uh, after the week after Thanksgiving. And so that's been pretty common among colleges, isn't it? That shift. Correct. Right. So we started seeing that happening. And so that we decided to do that as well. In addition to that, we have various protocols that, that uh, happen when isolation and quarantine is needed. So, yeah, you've got the, what, the Holiday Inn and another hotel in town for quarantine? The Quality Inn is our isolation hotel. And so uh, it's kind of interesting how that's gone. I mean, P, uh, some of the kids, I think, were excited until about day two, okay, <laughs> of, 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 <laughs> to be in the hotel. So that we don't even give them a key. I mean, it's so I, it's like isolation plus they don't even get a key. So, I mean, they're there and they can't leave. So how did this plan work once students got back to campus in August? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I and I, I I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't predict this, and I feel bad about this. But uh, I think that uh, I don't know if you two are seeing this around the country. You three are seeing this around the country, but this is what happened at Benedictine, and I think this is pretty typical, especially for small colleges. Um, we all came back. We're a pretty national school. We have students from 49 different states. Most small liberal arts colleges will have maybe about 65% of their students from their home state. Uh, we only have 20% from Kansas. So we had students from all over the country coming in. And how many total, uh, Steve, on uh, campus? So about 2,000 uh, undergraduates. And how uh, many live on campus? Uh, about 15, almost 1,600 on campus. All right. Go yeah. on with the story. So, so they all came back. Some brought it with them. They were asymptomatic. So they didn't know they had it. They gave it to others. Uh, others gave it to others. So we saw this, this peak early. And then uh, I think what happened with our students, we, uh, I guess I would say we clamped down a little harder. And then they realized that getting COVID is no fun and uh, making their, their roommates quarantine is no fun. And now we're starting to see this drop, okay? But kind of interesting, um, we, uh, we tested everybody when they came back, okay? Of everybody that we tested, there were 38 positive, uh, positive cases, all 38 of which were asymptomatic. And so as and you can imagine- And they brought with them. They did yeah, they, they brought okay. it with them. And so they tested, but it, but it took two days to get the results back. So all of a sudden you have 38 asymptomatic people with COVID not knowing they have it. All of a sudden they're with their roommates. Uh, they're not doing anything untoward. It's just they're, you know, on the couch playing PlayStation, they're eating and they pass it along. And then um, every, everybody since then. So we've had 136 total positive cases. A um, hundred of them, 98 of them, uh, have had symptoms, have symptoms. Okay. And so the first 38 were asymptomatic. Paul, what, what, what comments do you have on what he said? Is this expected, common, an outlier? I, I think you need to figure that there's going to be some people bringing COVID-19 into the campus and, and the job is really to uh, prevent it from spreading and getting out of control. Uh, because, you know, it doesn't take many cases before your contact tracing and requirements for quarantine are going to become, you know, really uh, all-consuming. And so you, you really need to keep the case counts down early. Uh, so, you know, a lot of um, states have set requirements for incidents within the population to be at a pretty low level before they at least let public schools start. You know, universities are a little bit different, but you don't want to be starting with a lot of disease. And then, and then you know, you want to make sure that there's steps in place to mitigate it. I, I looked over um, Benedictine's plans, which are on their website, and I, I thought they were uh, marvelously complete and scrupulous and, and, and well thought out. Uh, they're, they're really doing a lot of things um, that, that are to be admired. You know, not only the uh, masking and physical distancing, but uh, avoiding sharing of equipment, the directions that they have for attending mass, the accommodations that they've put forward for people who can't attend in person. Um, you know, letting people know that um, they, they do have a, a moral obligation to, to be their brother's keeper and to think about uh, those around them who might be at high risk, even if they're not. Uh, it, it's really, you know, well thought out. I, uh, uh, you know, kudos to you all. Well, thank you. And, 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 and Paul, I think what you said was really important. It's important for our students because 
students, I think it's natural. I think as an, as adults, and I've had a number of adults say to me, Hey, I've seen a couple of your kids without masks on, you know, they just don't get it. Okay. But I'm not so sure about that. I, I kind of think early on they did get it because what was happening is, is that these students were coming here. They're 18 to 22 year olds. They say, look it, I'm probably not going to get it. And even if I do, nothing bad is going to happen to me. I don't want to give up a great college experience uh, to worry about something that's not going to affect me very much. And, and, and finally, we just finally had to sit down with them saying, okay, I, I agree with you actually. But the problem is, is that you're not wearing a mask to protect your, you and your fellow classmates as much as you are protecting our head football coach who's 70, okay. And you're, and your professor here who is at risk and uh, it could be at risk. So you're really protecting others and people, members of the, of the par- local parish and people out at Walmart. And so these are the people you're protecting. So uh, when you protect the flock, it's the entire Benedictine and Atchison community. So that we really had to do a lot of um, education for them uh, because you know, the 136 um, positive cases we've had, uh, only one that's actually gone to the hospital, uh, but was not admitted. So we've had no hospitalizations, most um, some uh, headaches, and uh, can't taste or smell. And that's been about it from from our students. And Steve, when when the Department of Public Health for Kansas heard about these cases, what what kind of things did they bring up? Did they have requirements or requests for you guys? So we, uh, from the very beginning, we tried to, we were working with them throughout the entire summer. We would send them drafts of our Raven safety plan to make sure that they were comfortable with that. Um, When school started, um, we actually started having an 8.15 a.m. meeting with the entire cabinet just to talk about COVID, how many positive cases we had, how many in isolation, how many in quarantine, are there things that we're seeing that we should be doing differently? We then began inviting the county health department to those calls so they would be fully informed of what was happening. And I think, um, I think it was natural that they became very concerned from their, their perspective. Okay, so from March until August, they had had 80 some cases. Okay, let's say 85 positive cases. And then within about a two week period of time, their total number of cases more than doubled. So from their perspective, they were thinking, oh my gosh, Uh, they started getting calls from the state health department. You've got a real problem in Atchison. Your cases have doubled in two weeks. And so they sat there and said, okay, Benedictine College, uh, you're causing all of my pressure, (laughs) you know? And so what are you gonna do about it, right? And so, in Kansas, they have, they have the, I don't know about other states, uh, I don't know about Oregon, for example, Paul, or Indiana, but um, in Kansas anyway, the state, that the county health department has the ability to issue orders uh, uh-huh. to do things in their county uh, to protect the health of, of their citizens. And so one week- well, they, At least that's subsidiarity, something Catholics agree with. Yeah, I don't. I don't mind that at all. I mean, they're they're there on the on the ground. I, I had more problem with non um, non elected officials uh, taking uh, rights away from our our, our citizens. But sure. uh, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But anyway, <laughs> they they called us one night and said, "Hey, we're going to issue an order to quarantine the entire campus." Uh, and I said, get, "Get let us. We have some other mitigation things that we'd like to put in place. Um, uh, we were going to." redefine households to make it broader. So if one person in in a household, it used to be if a person tested positive for COVID, we would take their roommate and quarantine them. But what we decided to do is if they were in a suite of let's say eight total persons, we would now broaden the definition and quarantine seven of the the remaining seven for 14 days uh, and and, and take the one positive make them go to isolation. We also closed down our weight room. We thought maybe that was uh, creating some issues. And so we, we closed that down. We expanded our uh, masking requirement and, um, and we really did a more of an education to our students. And we said, let's see how that will work. Okay. And um, 
they really thought quarantining was the answer, but they agreed to see if this would work for a period of time. And we actually saw uh, it working, okay? But, um, but then I, I, I don't know what happened, but they got more nervous again. And they, uh, again, the next week then, actually gave us the order that they wanted to implement, which really caused a, a lot of issues. And we were sort of dis disappointed with that. It, it kind of came at the last minute. We didn't realize it was coming. 4.30, we got an order to uh, issue a quarantine of our all of our students on campus and off campus for 14 straight days. And it had to go into effect that night. Um, I'll give you a, a little of the details because it's kind of, it was shocking to us. So the order was, you're gonna quarantine in your room. You're not allowed to leave for 14 days except three times a day. You can go to the dining hall, get your food, go back to your room and stay there. You can't go to mass. You can't go out to exercise. You can't go to walk around. You can't go to class, obviously. I mean, you're there for 14 days. And then they ordered our off-campus students, who, by the way, are adults, and they've uh, entered into agreements, rental agreements. They pay gas and water and electricity. And they said, you're not allowed to leave your house for any reason. You can't even go to the store to get food. You are not allowed to leave for any reason for 14 days. So this caused a lot of concern for us, <laughs> you know. We actually told them, we said, look, at, you're, you're dealing with 18 to 22 year olds. I mean, we have, uh, like every college, this uh, generation has m some mental health issues. You, you actually may have more mental health and suicide issues than COVID issues if you do this and not allow them to go to mass, not allow them to, uh, to go out, uh, get exercise and things like that. It, was, it would have been really devastating for our students. So we started fighting back on that. Um, now was this the issues. Thursday, the Wednesday or Thursday before Labor Day weekend? Correct. So they gave us the order that they were gonna issue at 4.30 on Wednesday night to go into effect at midnight that night. So we had to completely figure out how we were gonna do this. They had an emergency county commissioner meeting that night at 5.30 p.m. Uh, and the commission uh, at the time believed it didn't have any rights to overturn that order and said so, but they asked the three members of the county health department, maybe we, there should be more discussion with the college to see if you can reach some sort of an agreement instead of issuing this draconian order um, that that night, that very night. So we spent all all day Thursday and uh, all, most of the morning on Friday trying to reach an agreement that would be more palatable to us and actually uh, protect protect the city. So, you know, so we did. were able to do that. And that, that included an eight thirty or seven thirty your time p.m. rosary with how many students on their knees last yeah, Thursday night? We, I mean. They, uh, 400 to 700 students that were literally on their knees praying a rosary that an agreement can be reached. That was Thursday night. It was the most inspiring thing I think I've ever seen. We had all these kids praying a rosary that we can reach an agreement so they won't be confined to their rooms <laughs> for 14 days. I mean, it was really inspiring. And so now you're living on that agreement, which allows yes. them off campus for jobs, Yes. Uh -huh. And for necessities, medical appointments, but otherwise they're to stay on campus. They stay on campus, but they get to go to class. Uh, and they uh, and we actually suspended athletic practices for a week, and so they'll they'll uh, that preserve the season for them, so they can start practice next Saturday. Off campus students, we've asked uh, to take their classes online uh, for a couple weeks. They can come on to campus for work study and for things that they, they are needed, such as labs uh, and uh, athletic practices, if they're allowed athletic practices after a week. So, Paul, before we take our first break, what are some reflections you have on this story? Uh, well, I think um, the, 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 the best message for me is that it's good to work together. It's good for the, for the county officials and the school to be uh, hashing out the problems because 
you know, I, I, I work in public health, but uh, I'm not intimately familiar with campus life. I mean, I have my recollections of it, obviously, but <laughs> but every campus is a little bit different. And I think uh, before a draconian uh, order like this is issued, I, I think it would be good if, if everybody sat down and discussed, you know, where are the main places where, where transmission is of concern and how can we mitigate them uh, in, in a practical way. And Steve, have the numbers come down in the last week? And we're recording this on September 8th. This will air just in a few days. Yeah. But since you, what have you seen in terms of case numbers? Yeah, so here on Mary's birthday, I'm wearing my blue tie <laughs> with the Fleur-de-lis in honor of Our Lady's birthday, yes. right? Um, and, uh, and they're coming down. So we, about two weeks ago, we had a high of about 74 active positive cases. So we had 74 people in isolation and we had, you know, more than double the amount in quarantine. So we were, we were very uh, concerned about that. Uh, since that time today, uh, we have 16 uh, active cases. All of them are in quarantine. I think uh, 10 of them are actually home and five of, or uh, six of them are at the, uh, at the hotel. And so that they have dramatically gone down. We, we went from an average during our high uh, average of about eight or nine positives a day to I think we're about three positives a day. The last three days actually were two, one and zero yesterday. So excellent. Well, on that positive note, let's take a break and we'll be back with more of Dr. Doctor here in the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And we're back with Dr. Doctor discussing COVID going to college and the, the new world that we're living in in this fall semester of 2020. You know, Paul, one of the things that we had touched on are, are kind of metrics about the best way to watch cases and monitor if some of the, the things that we're doing are working. And frequently, the idea of new cases among students is the best metric uh, thrown around. In your opinion, is that the best thing we should be looking at to figure out if we're doing a good job or not? Well, I think you need to look at the rates among students because that's that's really going to be an indicator of how much work the college and the public health people are going to have to do in order to try to keep things in check. But I, th I think a more relevant indicator might be cases among uh, teachers or employees of the college because we know that the youngsters who are attending college are at very low risk for uh, adverse you know, mortality outcomes. Uh, the New York Times did a survey of college campuses and found 51,000 cases and 60 deaths. So that's about a, you know, 1.1 per thousand death rate uh, on college campuses. Um, the, so the students are at very low risk for adverse outcomes, but I think the bigger risk is going to be to the employees, you know, some of whom are going to be 70 years of age and over. Uh, so I'd, I'd be keeping a close eye on that. You know, another thing that I noticed, uh, Paul, is that, you know, among deaths that have occurred since uh, the beginning of this year, only 1.5% of deaths in those between the ages of 15 and 24 in the U.S. have been due to COVID. They have 25 times greater uh, chance of dying of an accident, 13 times the risk of dying of suicide, or 10 times the risk of that of being murdered. So how concerned should parents be and should their college student children be? Well, I would say that, um, you know, if your student or if you are, is a young, healthy person, the, the risk of uh, serious adverse events is very, very low. I was looking at the CDC data and they presented by uh, 18 to 29 year olds. Um, most, the, the, the biggest percentage of cases is in that age cohort. Over a million cases have been reported nationally. Uh, and there are 719 deaths. So that's about one out of every 1,400 cases uh, was fatal in that age group. So very, very low uh, mortality risk. 
I, I think uh, it was said earlier that they, they have gotten the message. They're not at high risk, and so they take more liberties. But, um, but what we do have to remind them is that, you know, you're part of a larger social fabric and, and you know, please be concerned about uh, the people that you might transmit it to. Uh, you don't want to be part of a chain of transmission that, that uh, ends up with someone in the intensive care unit. It, it makes me think too, Steve, that maybe a, um, students at Benedictine with the Cardinal Newman Society endorsement and having a faith-based, you know, student group maybe they'd be more open to hearing that, you know, how, how has this been received by everybody on campus? Right. I think it's, um, so our, our mission is to educate within a community of faith and scholarship. And my, my impression of just in the short time we've been back has been that the kids came back, they hadn't seen each other since March, you know, oh my gosh, let me help you move in. It's so great seeing you probably hugs. I think that's probably, you know, probably what happened. And then um, our numbers started go, uh, kind of spiked early. And then we were able to have conversations with them and say, okay, look it, I know that you're excited about seeing each other and you haven't seen each other since March, but this is a serious thing, okay? And that it's not with you, it's with others. It's with your professor, it's with your coach, it's with your administrator. It's with the person that you go to church with at St. Benedict's. It's worth, uh, you know, uh, and that really has resonated with them. I, I don't, there was a, way before COVID, there was this psychological um, study that they did and they put in, they had two bathrooms. One bathroom had a sign that said, wash your hands so you won't get sick. And the other bathroom had a sign that said, wash your hands so others won't get sick. And what they found was, is that the, the bathroom that had the sign that said, wash your hands so others won't get sick, more people wash their hands in that one than the first one. So mm. people will take care of others, okay? They, they naturally are inclined to that. And especially on our campus, they're way more inclined to, to care about others. So that message resonates with our students, especially. Steve, we doctors talk to each other around the country about what's going on. I mean, Paul Cieslak and some other doctors, and I, we're always talking online. So we suspect you college presidents are doing the same thing. What have you learned from other college presidents during this unprecedented time? Yeah, I think that what I learned, uh, especially in the last week or two, is that everybody is facing the same thing. And I think that you're seeing across the country a lot of spikes early, and then I, I think what I'm hoping, at least on our campus, we're seeing a tailing off uh, after the excitement about being back. I, th I think that's what everybody's seeing. So, Paul, do you think that what we're seeing with, you know, Notre Dame and Virginia calling a, a two-week reset, uh, with Benedict in here not having to do the complete reset, but at least strengthening their guidelines, do you think this is the best way to go about keeping our students on campus? Do you think it's worth it versus the schools that just sent all their students home for a virtual semester again? Uh, yes, I do. I am very nervous, first of all, about sending a bunch of students home when you've got a lot of uh, virus circulating on campus. I know Dr. Fauci has, has explicitly advised against that, you know, because you tend to be sending them back to environments that have even, you know, higher concentrations of older people like their parents, for example. Oh, yes. um, and, and so that's, uh, shouldn't be recommended as a general rule. Uh, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for the campus that is seeing such high case rates that they're having trouble managing it. I mean, uh, again, if you start off with a lot of cases and then see a quick spike, uh, you, can, you can overwhelm your own resources. And I have a lot of sympathy for that. But um, in general, I think the better part of valor is to try to keep the students on campus. Steve, what would be the worst things that would happen if students had to go home or had to quarantine? Well, this is a great, great question because we saw this in March, right? We, as I said, our, our mission is to educate within a community of faith and scholarship. So we believe from the beginning that COVID directly attacks our mission, right? It attacks community because it makes it forces people in their homes to quarantine. It makes people wear masks. They have to distance. So it really hurts community. It attacked our faith. It, it made, took us out of the churches. We weren't getting the sacraments. And then it attacked scholarship because it forced people away from the best way to educate young people, which is 
face-to-face in a classroom and put them online on a screen. And so this is really, uh, this is really important. So people, uh, when we go think about our mission, you know, um, humans are social beings and they need each other to be fully alive. And so if you can't do that because of COVID, that hurts community. Uh, humans also want to have a desire, innate desire to worship, okay? And so if you take them out of churches and they stop worshiping God, then they're going to start worshiping the internet or social media or politics or pornography. And so uh, if you can put them on a Catholic college campus where, uh, you know, there's access to the sacraments, I mean, that's going to be a lot better for them than to be at home where they, they don't, uh, they, ha- they start worshiping other things. And finally, uh, humans have, have a desire to learn and, and are naturally curious. And so if you don't put them in a classroom with teachers with, and, and have them read uh, good works, uh, then they're going to start learning from uh, 280 characters or uh, sources that you can't really rely on. And so COVID attacks community faith and scholarship. And so is our commitment to bring them back so we could, we could do that. You know, I told our, our, our ministry group, look, at, we're going to inherit a lot of broken people out there. I mean, we're going to have young people that have not gone to church since March. And so they're going to come back on our campus. So what we have to do, we won't be able to provide the entire community piece because we're going to have masks. We're going to distance. We won't be able to do exactly what we want to do on the scholarship piece because we will have faculty members that can't teach face-to-face, so they're going to do it online. What we can do is provide them a faith aspect that they can't get at home. So we double the number of daily masses, double the number of Sunday masses, double the number of priests in our ministry because we wanted to provide them an overwhelming opportunity for faith on our campus. And I'll tell you what, of all the things that we're going to do, that's going to have the largest impact among our students and will be the could be the sole reason to bring them back <laughs> is to give them that. And that's really important. And what a blessing, you know, and that's, I mean, you bring up a great point. If, if college were as parents, we're paying to send our kids to college and these are important things. We've got to weigh that with kind of the, what seems like it's sometimes the myopic fear of COVID, right? Cause it's a balancing act. And Paul, you know, how, how do we do that? I know Tom has done a lot. He might be a world expert on it after the last couple articles. I don't know, but we've, we've looked at a lot of the downsides of some of these public health measures. How do we weigh that when we're really talking about this individual college kid? I know charity dictates we have to care for the whole community, but, you know, making sure that we don't compromise their mental health and other things. How do we balance that, Paul? Right. Well, I, I think, first of all, it would be good if we had some better metrics about uh, the effect of some of these uh, social measures taken to uh, undertaken to stem the spread of COVID, because they are very important. And everyone in public health knows, for example, that, uh, you know, the economy is not, you know, divorced from health. Uh, it's intimately related to health. Obviously, the first things that come to mind are some of the mental health issues. But uh, longer down the road are, are you know, lack of education and, and a lot of the um, social consequences that come with, uh, with um, not, not being able to go to school or not, not having live instruction. Uh, so it, it, it requires a mindfulness and it requires, um, you know, public health officials to, to maintain a holistic perspective. We tend to be uh, you know, sequestered in our own little areas of public health. I'm in communicable diseases, so it's easy to see how, it's easy to start thinking that, that you know, communicable diseases are the only thing out there. Uh, but by, by listening to people and, and by considering all the, all the uh, consequences of the actions, I think that'll, that'll keep us in mind. I do think that, um, that, you know, attending in-person classes has all kinds of benefits that need to be Uh, seriously considered when you're undertaking any of these measures. Mm -hmm. Steve, I understand from talking to my daughter, I've seen the, the protocols, the, the, the updated ones. At what point would the protocols be so onerous that it might be better not to be on campus? In other words, how do you balance, you know, the distancing? You're right. You can't do community the same way. What would be, what would be too much? Yeah. 
That's a great question. Probably the, the, the greatest strategy we had was have the, the county uh, threaten uh, 14 days of isolation right. in your room because now anything we do is awesome. It's not that, right? <laughs> but, yes. Uh, so they helped you by doing that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I say that facetiously because you ask a really, really important question. I don't know what the tipping point is because yes. of our mission is community, faith, and scholarship. But yet we tell these kids, you have to wear a mask and you have to socially distant. Um, that really hurts community. And so the students start asking themselves is, I'm not getting the full experience here because COVID is not allowing me to do that. I mean, one thing that we've noticed, uh, we've, we've gone for a couple, uh, we're going to start in the second week now of grab and go at dinner. Okay. So in other words, what we, we thought there may have been spread in the dining hall because they're sitting uh, around a table. Sure. We have taken chairs out, but you know, our kids love each other. They grab chairs and, and push them next to each <laughs> other. And so we were worried about that. So we went completely grab and go and the kids sit outside. Now it's really nice. We got tents everywhere. So people can, can uh, still, you know, eat, but that's the only time they actually get to see a fellow classmates face is during dinner. I mean, they don't even know what these, what their classmates, what their schoolmates look like because they have, except during dinner. And so they will have the longest dinners on record and they'll keep food in front of them because they can say, hey, I'm still eating here <laughs> because I want to, you know, build community. Uh, and I get that. But, you know, that is a concern. So you asked a really great question. I'm not sure I know what the tipping point is. But, you know, you've heard the phrase, you know, is a cure worse than the disease? Yes. And so we, we have to continue to ask that of ourselves, you know. Now, Paul, something I learned um, yesterday is uh, my youngest daughter, who's at Hillsdale, said that after their initial two weeks of doing symptom checks, temperature checks, and every student every day, no spread, they are allowing now uh, their dorms, which are small, but uh, in the dorms, they don't have to wear masks anymore. What do you think of the wisdom of that? Does that make a certain amount of sense to try to allow more community? Or might that be going too far, even though they have two weeks with no cases in that in those little communities? Well, that, that's really remarkable that they don't have any cases. Um, you know, and if you really have no virus, then, then there isn't so much of a reason to insist on the masking. Um, but, you know, they're, they're certainly going to be at risk if the virus is reintroduced by, say, you know, some other uh, person coming from off of campus and bringing it in. And, and if they're not doing the masking and social distancing, then they're going to see a lot more spread. So it sounds to me like it's a calculated risk, like, you know, we're going to reap the benefits of the social interactions, uh, keep our fingers crossed, and then, um, and then hopefully jump on it soon and, and reinstitute the, the social distancing and masking if they start to see any cases at all. And they, and they still uh, wear the masks in the, the, the classroom buildings, uh, other buildings on campus. It's just in their dorm where they don't have to do that anymore. But Again, it's back to the last question with Steve. You know, how do you balance the sense of community with the public health needs? Uh, and it's part art and part science. Exactly right. And and you know, I can't I can't give the answer for any uh, specific situation. It may well be that you know they've got their disease rates down low enough where they can uh, you know, try to more closely approximate normality. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, you have to be hesitant and you have to acknowledge that you're accepting some risk when you do that. Yes. As we're looking forward throughout this semester, I know, Steve, you had mentioned, uh, like many of the colleges, ending before Thanksgiving and having that, that time off. Are there any special guidelines or instructions you're giving folks prior to returning potentially in the spring semester? Boy, that's a really great question. I've been, you know... Uh, kind of dreading this this whole decision making process that's going to happen in November because um, I don't know what the I don't know what our end game is here right I mean I think everybody's thinking that I, I don't know actually Paul I'd love to hear that I mean is the end game <laughs> we have to kind of wait until we get um, a vaccine and then we'll be able to get back to normal or will the will the virus just kind of peter out and I don't know. I'm I'm anxious to hear kind of what you think. Paul, what do you think? Well, well, my best guess is that yes, the end game is the vaccine because 
uh, we've got a long way to go before we develop enough population immunity really to uh, start thwarting transmission. So uh, until then, it's going to be a lot of the non-pharmaceutical, you know, masking, distancing interventions that we can undertake to try to uh, lower the transmission rate. So, so then uh, back to your question, Andrew, um, what does that mean for a college? I guess you probably go through the same decision-making that you went through in the summertime. We would be still committed to, to coming back. I mean, I'm dreaming of a vaccine that would start to get distributed, you know, in the, I would hope early 2021. I mean, this is kind of what people say. I don't know if they're optimistic or not. And Paul, you probably have more insight than I do, but you know, Frankly, uh, our students are going to be the last ones to get the vaccine. You know, I mean, you're going to you do frontline. And so I don't know how fast it can be. Even if you were ready to send out a vaccine in January, I don't know when our campus would, would get it. Uh, Paul, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, the talk that I hear coming from the Federal Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice, it seems to be, you know, they're going to give it to the highest risk people first, which most of your college students are not going to be. So, uh, it'll take a while before supply gets ramped up enough that uh, vaccine can be given to the lower risk people. They're they're looking at uh, healthcare providers, essential service providers, you know, older people, people with um, uh, comorbid comorbid conditions that put them at high risk uh, first, and then further down the line, your mm-hmm. younger healthy people. And then I keep hearing, I'd love to hear folks on this call, this uh, program, but I keep hearing optimistic. Um, uh, possible approvals maybe in the fall, but, and then possible uh, January or February. Yeah. We're going to be interviewing one of the best vaccine experts in the country on October 6th to air that following weekend. So in about another month, Steve, we're going to have some great information for you because (laughs) Operation Warp Speed hopes to have a vaccine available November 1st. That's very optimistic, but we'll have uh, updates for you. Absolutely. Stay tuned, doctor to doctor. You are right. right. <laughs> we love it. Um, so I'd like each of you to comment on what are the most important things, first of all, um, you, Steve, what are the most important things you would like listeners to know who are parents of college students? Sure. Um, I, get, I get emails all the time. I have some parents that would like to have their, their student wrapped in bubble wrap, okay? <laughs> Uh, I have uh, also a lot of students that say, I don't want my kid wearing a mask. I don't want him social distance. I want to have a college experience. Every college in America is trying to balance both of those desires somehow. We, from the beginning, we said we want our mitigation plans to be reasonable and doable and to create a safe and healthy environment. And we've tried to do that. And that's probably going to be masks, distancing, and, and constant hand washing. And, and we think that's probably a pretty good plan. Not everybody likes that, but uh, I think that's probably reasonable, doable, and probably what people are asking of us. And Paul, the same question for you. What do you think is the most important message you would like to tell uh, parents of college students? Uh, remember that uh, kids that age tend to think they're invincible. And in fact, um, they're likely to do very well if they're young and healthy. Uh, but please impress upon your student uh, the responsibility to be mindful of others who might not so fare so well were they to contract COVID-19. Um, and that, uh, you know, tell your student, if you get the virus, you want it to stop with you. You don't want to be part of that chain of viral transmission that ends with a more vulnerable person in the intensive care unit. Dr. Paul Sieslak, President Steve Minnis, thank you so much for sharing your stories and wisdom here on Dr. Doctor. And we'll be back with the answer to the medical trivia question just after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. University life during a plague. Who invented calculus, deepened our knowledge of optics, and described gravity and the laws of motion? None other than a 22 to 23 year old Isaac Newton. Wow. Holy Incredible. Cow. Yes. Yeah, that's a productive time away from college, I'd say. Yes. Not the normal experience of college students during COVID. <laughs> well, we have a few well, listener questions we wanted to tackle. That's right, Tom. I, we've got a message here from Gail, and she asks, if students should be required to wear masks at Catholic schools, K through 12, what do you think? And I think when will the mask mandate to, end? Yeah, after listening to Paul Sieslak, 
I mean, if older students are in college are doing it, the younger students, as they are able to wear it, if they're old enough, and typically they're using like age eight as a cutoff some places, age three other places, I don't know the right cutoff, but I do know that we're trying to protect the older relatives and people in their circles, not just uh, themselves. So yes, I think it is reasonable. Uh, but also if you can space them in large rooms, it might be reasonable at times to have their masks off. And those are local decisions. Well, and you know, Tom, there's a follow-up question about dangers, health dangers to wearing a mask all day long. What, what do you have to say about that? We've been looking, there are not many, there, are, there might be some people, and I've heard this from our psychologist that we've had on before, Peter Malinowski, there might be some people who've had events in their lives where it can be traumatic for them, but for the mo vast majority of people, there's no health risk of not getting enough oxygen, of building up CO2. Uh, those have been shown to be untrue based on uh, various studies done. Okay. Well, and then the, the last follow-up was wondering, Tom, if you had a direct line to the USCCBs for these recommendations. If we and our staff, no, we do not have a direct line. And our staff consists of our beloved Andrea, who works from her home to uh, produce these shows for the, us three doctors who are working full-time seeing patients, raising kids, taking care of our wives. Well, they take care of us. But uh, no, um, <laughs> we do not have a direct line, but we do have some contacts, but we can't we are we open to a direct line, though. If, if the USCCB is listening, we're open to a direct line. Happy to help. <laughs> but we do have CMA members on their committees, and they have been appreciative of the uh, guidelines for mass, and uh, both Paul Cieslak and I are on that little working group. That's good. Well, That's good. that brings us to the end of another episode, and we thank you for listening to it, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, your very own Dr. Doctor, brought to you from Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of this show with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. Uh, and be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners to find us. And please send us your questions or tell us how something you heard on Dr. Doctor changed your life. We've got several good episodes coming up, so be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.